This morning's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. <clears throat> and this is our, finally our concluding message in this series on biblical manhood and womanhood, part 5 which I've titled, Maintaining Distinctions. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And the Word of God says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Please join me. In a word of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now as we uh, conclude this, uh, this so important and yet so difficult passage of Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. And as we I finally come to the, the, the conclusion of Paul's point. Lord, we pray that you would grant us clarity of mind. Pray that you would enable us to rightly divide and to understand your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to, to rightly apply it to our lives and to be willing to bow the knee to Holy Scripture. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your inerrant and authoritative word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as a culture, this probably goes without saying, and I've said it several times as we've gone through this series, we, we are experiencing complete chaos when it comes to gender identity and gender roles. I mean, if you just simply look around at our culture, if you follow the news to any extent, you, you see it everywhere. And it is creating so much turmoil, so much animosity, so much division in our culture, and understandably so. Things like the whole Bud Light incident and uh, all of the transgender uh, athletes who are dominating women's sports. I find that quite fascinating. Um, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, tennis legend Martina uh, Navratilova uh, basically took a swipe at the U.S. Tennis Association for allowing transgender men to now officially compete in professional women's tennis, at least in the United States, and she posted on her social media platform, she said, 
Come on, USTA, women's tennis is not for failed male athletes. Close quote. She makes a point. Last week, a transgender powerlifter set a new female powerlifting record, if some of you saw that. Squatting, benching, and deadlifting a combined total weight of nearly 500 pounds more than the woman who took second place. That is a record that will never be beaten by a biological woman if it is allowed to stand. But it's not just in the realm of sports and politics where we are seeing a lot of gender confusion and gender role confusions, not just outside of the church. A year ago, Crosswalk.com, a Christian online uh, publishing platform, uh, published an article titled, Is It Wrong to Be a Stay-at-Home Dad? And the author wrote in this article, and I quote, A man can stay home, raise the children, and sometimes make an even more effective leader because his focus is solely on the family's health and well-being. So there's the logic. If you want to be the most effective spiritual leader and head for your home, the author argues, then you should stay home. Let the wife go out and bring home uh, what is needed for the family to survive. The author goes on to say in the article, and I quote, I cannot draw on any scripture that states clearly that men are wrong to remain in the home and care for their children, close quote. I guess they must have skipped over 1 Timothy 5.8 and Titus 2.5. They then conclude the article, not they, but the author concludes the article saying, when one takes time to study the scripture, do you get the implication? Those that don't agree with the author just aren't studying your Bibles. When one takes time to study the scripture, they will discover that men are highly leaned on to take the role of spiritual leader to their children, to raise the children in the things of the Lord, to teach the children wisdom and strength. One may argue that if a dad is able to stay home with the children, this also aids in fulfilling that role that God has given to them as father. You see, this is an age-old tactic that began in the garden. And that's where you insert just enough of the truth, enough of God's word, mingled with lies, and you can deceive almost anyone. Remember in our corporate reading this morning, we read from Genesis 3, 4 to 6, <clears throat> but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That's kind of a half-truth, right? It wasn't entirely lying. They didn't fall over dead as soon as they ate the fruit. You will not surely die. It's a bit of an exaggeration. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. 
Well, that's true. Their eyes were opened in ways that they shouldn't have been. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, not entirely wrong. God knows good and evil. Adam and Eve didn't. The difference is God can handle it. Adam and Eve couldn't. And so the woman and the man bought into the lie. I mentioned at the beginning of this series, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, way back in the hoary past, if you can remember when we started this series. I've got a few more gray hairs since then. <laughs> but if you can remember at the beginning of this series, I... Uh, I mentioned that 1 Corinthians 11, chapters 2, or uh, chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, is one of the most significant, possibly the most significant passage regarding how men and women, husbands and wives, are to relate to one another. We tend to not think of it that way. You know, when we, when we talk about, you know, marriage, if we're going to prepare a, a study or a lesson on, on marriage, um, you know, we tend to go where, right? We tend to go to Ephesians 5. That's the first place we tend to go. We might secondly go to Titus 2, maybe 1 Peter chapter 3. Yet nonetheless, in this section, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to, 2 to 16, <clears throat> while Paul is dealing with the topic of head coverings, that is the topic that he's dealing with. Let's not lose sight of that. Nonetheless, as he makes his argument, as he makes his way to verse 16, he gives us multiple very important points that all have to do with the biblical way in which men and women are to relate to one another, how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. In fact, this section has 88 more words than the passage we go to in Ephesians chapter 5. 88 more words. It is much longer. There is much more information here than we find in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul spends a lot of time on this. You wonder, why does Paul spend so much time on this? Remember, the church in Corinth is a church that is struggling with disunity. They're, they're, they're fighting over all kinds of things that, that are threatening to tear the church apart. It's interesting to note that some of the longest sections that Paul spends in this book has to do with the relationship between men and women. For example, you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the entire chapter is all about how men and women sexually relate to each other. And then we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we've got this very lengthy section on the biblical roles and responsibilities of and the differences between men and women. This is because Paul understands that this is a topic of all topics. This is a topic that can very easily divide a church. Some of us are painfully aware of that. Because there are a lot of other topics that people can disagree with that won't divide a church. 
There are people in the congregation that can hold to the Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper, and the pastor can preach the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper, and eh, all right, so we just disagree on that. There are people who can sit in the congregation and believe that tongues does not exist, and the pastor can say, you know, I think tongues can exist, and some people can speak in tongues. Eh, all right, so we can disagree on that. But when you start talking about how men and women are to behave within the church, within the family, within marriage, when you start talking about what their specific roles and responsibilities are, boy, people will get their hackles up. Suddenly their attention is razor sharp and people can become easily offended. This is what we're seeing in the world. This is why there is so much divisiveness and animosity and anger that we see in the culture, that we see in politics. It all comes down to this. All of the gender confusion that exists, the way the lines have been blurred, is making a civil disagreement impossible in our current culture. And so Paul spends a lot of time on this. And in the text that we're looking at this morning, Paul is finally going to drive home his point that he's been working towards since verse 2. So we have finally arrived. People have been wondering for weeks now, months actually. And in verse 13, Paul says, Judge for yourselves... Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul now appeals to common sense. Judge for yourself. Just think about it logically, rationally. You see, because thus far, Paul has made a cultural argument for head coverings. He does that in verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful, it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So there he's making the cultural argument. Right? He's reminding them that, look, you know, modest women, respectable women, when they go out, you know, they, they cover their heads. No, no respectable woman would be out in public without her head covered. That's just what they do. So he makes the cultural argument. And then in verses 7 to 11, he then presents a theological argument appealing to creation. He points back to the creation narrative in verses 7 to 11. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. So there he makes this theological argument. So he starts by presenting a cultural argument, then he presents a theological argument, and now what we are looking at is that Paul is going to present a logical or a rational or a common sense argument. 
He says, judge for yourselves. Paul is fond of doing this, of just appealing to common sense, appealing to person's logic or rationale. We see that, for example, in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, when talking about, beginning to talk about the Lord's Supper, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, just think about, listen to what I'm saying logically, rationally, think through this, and you'll agree that this makes sense, is what Paul is saying. He does that in other places. We'll see it, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Likewise also, <clears throat> that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. What, what is proper for women? Well, what does that mean? Well, that's where Paul is simply appealing to common sense, right? Because some people could say, well, well that's kind of a subjective term, right? I mean, to dress modestly, to dress in a way that is proper for Godly women, well, what does that mean? I mean, what is proper to one may not be proper to other. What's modest to one may not be modest to another. You know, Paul would simply say to that, you know, you can try to split hairs when it comes to words and when it comes to God all you want. But common sense will tell you what is proper and what is not. Right? Common sense will tell you what is modest and what is not. Right? We all, we all know immodesty when we see it, right? It may be hard to define, but we know it when we see it. And Paul says, look, just use common sense and dress. Women ought to dress in a way that is proper and modest. And so he's already made the point that this is culturally unacceptable. We saw that verses 5, back in verses 5 and 6. He's already made the point that, that for women, for modest women, respectable women, to go out in public, you know, with their head uncovered would be improper. Everybody knows that in that day and age. Everybody, everybody knows that. No respectable or modest woman would go to the marketplace with her head uncovered. You just, you just don't do that. Only women of the night would do something like that. And so therefore, Paul is making the argument that, that if that is what's proper for women who are going to the marketplace, then doesn't it make sense that in church, in corporate worship, particularly when women are prophesying or praying, that they should also wear a head covering? Doesn't that just make sense? Thus, Paul is really asking in verse 13 a rhetorical question. Right with an obvious answer. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. In light of all that he has said, it's an obvious answer. The answer is no, it is not proper for a woman to do that. And so now Paul wants to end with one more argument, argument before Moving on to the next section, the next subject, which we'll see in verse 17, we'll begin talking about uh, the Lord's Supper. But he wants to end with just one more argument. And this is an argument from common sense, an argument from observation. 
is, uh, is what he's doing. And we see that in verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Interesting wording. Does not nature itself teach you that these things are true? Well, what does he mean by nature itself? Well, the Greek word is the word fusis. And uh, it means what is natural, what is normal, or what is understood from simple observation. We look out the natural world and what we understand, what we see with our eyes from nature itself. And we see that in different ways. Paul uses that same kind of language when making different arguments. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In other words, men and women naturally reproduce. Right? Men and women naturally reproduce. Thus, same-sex relations are contrary to nature. They're contrary to what's obvious, to what makes sense. Same-sex relationships cannot reproduce because it's not natural, according to Scripture. Paul will use that argument in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2.15, Paul says this, For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. The word birth is actually the Greek word fusis. He is literally saying we ourselves are Jews by nature. We are Jews by nature and not. In other words, a person who is born from Jewish parents are what? Jews. They are naturally Jews. They are Jews by nature. It's just something that nat- naturally happens. He'll say again in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In other words, idols, statues, are by nature not gods. They are naturally not gods. That's common sense. You can't take a piece of wood and whittle a little figure out of it, and all of a sudden you pray to it and it's got some sort of magical power. It's just a piece of wood. They are by nature not gods. Most significantly in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this, Among whom we all live, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We'll talk more about that this coming Wednesday when we talk about the doctrine of man. 
People, human beings, ever since Adam and Eve, who are born into this world, are by nature children of wrath. They are born with a sin nature. Sin is not just what we do, sin is what we are. And therefore we are naturally sinful creatures. It's observable. You can see it in the world. It doesn't take long before little Johnny learns how to lie. It's even a shorter time before you see that little anger and temper tantrum comes out in the six-month-old, right? It's there. So Paul says back in verse chapter 11, verse 14, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Thus Paul is making the argument that when we look around... When we look around at the world, nature communicates that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman wears long hair, it is her glory. Though Paul does not specify, right? He doesn't specify what he means by long and short. I mean, well, okay, well, what does that mean, Paul? Long hair, short hair. How, how long is long enough and how short is not uh, short enough? Though Paul does not specify that, we know that from the first century world and from world history, there seems to be one observable and inexplicable fact. In other words, interesting quote by a Hellenistic Jewish poet from the 6th century B.C. Well, it's, it's a... a it's uh, claimed to have been written in the 6th century B.C. Most uh, historians believe that uh, this Jewish uh, Hellenistic poet by the name of uh, Felicities, if I'm pronouncing his name right, actually wrote in the year around 70 A.D., but originally it was thought to have been written in the 6th century B.C. But this Hellenistic Jewish poet uh, wrote this, at least near the 1st century, Quote, if a child is a boy, do not let locks grow on his head. Do not braid his crown nor cross knots at the top of his head. Long hair is not fit for boys, but for voluptuous women. Close quote. Interesting quote. Also, the first century philosopher uh, Epictetus, Again, struggling to pronounce these names, Epictetus. The first century Greek philosopher Epictetus wrote a work called The Discourses. And, uh, and the way they oftentimes uh, taught philosophy back then is they would write, uh, and, and Plato did this, Socrates did this, uh, Aristotle followed the same pattern, where they would write basically a dialogue between two or more people having a conversation going back and forth. And that is how they taught philosophy. And so this work written by Epictetus uh, titled The Discourses is the same thing. It's a dialogue. And, uh, and in this discourse, he tells of an encounter that he has with a, quote, a certain young rhetorician coming to him with his hair too elaborately ornamented, close quote. That's what he says. He talks about a rhetorician who's coming to him, a young rhetorician coming to him with his hair too elaborately 
ornamented. And then he says to him, quote, Are you a man or a woman? A man. Then adorn yourself as a man and not as a woman. Close quote. Theologian Bruce Winter points out in his commentary, quote, The only surviving statues in Corinth portraying men wearing long hair beside male deities are those appearing in the facade of the captives in the forum in Roman Corinth. Their long hair is intended to send the message that these captives were weak, soft, and effeminate. Close quote. That's the only, that, that is the only surviving, the only surviving statues in Corinth portraying men with long hair were the captives, the Roman captives of the Roman army are men portrayed with long hair. And it was designed to send the message that these Roman captives were men who were weak, soft, and effeminate. It is a noteworthy fact that throughout world history, in every culture, men's hair is always shorter than women. There are times when men's hair were culturally acceptable to be longer, but throughout world history, men's hair was always longer than women. Even when we go back to the days of colonial America under British rule, um, you know, men, you've seen the photos, right? George Washington uh, had hair that was uh, down to the middle of his shoulder blades. Typically, he would uh, wear it braided and have a bow tied around the back of it. Our first four presidents, uh, George uh, George Washington, John, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, um, all had uh, long hair, fairly long hair, about shoulder length or maybe even longer. Thereafter, everybody after George Madison has, or James Madison has, has uh, short hair, even to the present day. But what you will also notice if you study uh, colonial America is that the men, oftentimes, uh, Benjamin Franklin had hair that was down shoulder length and maybe a little longer. The women had hair that was down to their waist, sometimes down to the back of their knee. And they would wear it up and they would wear a hat out in public. That practice in the Western world comes from passages like this. The women would wear a hat. They'd go out in public. They'd have a bonnet on. They would have their hair up. And the only time a woman would let her hair down normally would be in the privacy of her own bedroom with her husband. That's where the phrase comes from, letting your hair down. Being open and honest and exposed. And that was the only time women would do that. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating fact that even anthropologists noticed. Um, remember, anthropologists, the study of anthropology is the study of people and cultures and behavior. And uh, back before, you know, back in the 1600s when uh, the Europeans were just starting to explore the world and they were settling on the, uh, landing on the coast of South America and North America, several things they found fascinating when they discovered North American Indians, when they discovered South American uh, uh, native uh, Indians in South America, Indians living in the, the Amazon jungle. Uh, one thing that they found fascinating is that most of their laws were very similar to European laws. 
even though they had never heard the Bible or anything about Jesus Christ. It was still wrong to murder. It was wrong to lie. It was wrong to steal. Right? Hmm. Might have something to do with what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. The laws of God are written upon the hearts of men. But what they also found interesting is that regardless of the length of hair, women's hair was always much longer than men. Native American Indians, we know, the men oftentimes had hair that was down to the middle of their back. But the women had very long hair. Sometimes it would even drag on the floor. Even among the Kanean Kaheka, the Kanean Kaheka Indians, I'm trying to honor them by pronouncing their name correctly. The Kanean Kaheka Indians of northeastern United States, northeastern American during colonial America, most of you know them as the Mohawk Indians. That's what Europeans named them. They called them the Mohawk Indians, but their actual name was the Kanean Kaheka Indians. Only the men wore Mohawks. Only the men would shave their heads on the side and would wear Mohawk. The women, what I read in a historical article, the women oftentimes wore their hair very long. And often they would style it with grease. They would style their hair with grease in different ways made from bear fat. Try that. That's got to be good for your scalp. I don't know. But they would style their hair with bear fat, grease made from bear fat, or they would braid their hair very long and it almost went down to the ground. And so Paul makes the argument from simple observation. He says, just simply look around at the world. Nature itself shows us that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. But then he says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And now the debate begins. What does that mean? Does Paul mean that a woman's hair, a woman's long hair, acts as her covering? Therefore, she need not wear a hat, she need not wear a shawl of any kind, because her hair acts as a covering, right? So women ought to have a covering, God gave them their hair as a covering, therefore her hair is her covering, and she need not wear a hat. Well, if that's what Paul is saying, then why didn't he just say that from the very beginning? Right? Wouldn't it have just been... He could have just said that back in verse 2. Because we know all scholars agree that throughout this section, Paul is talking about actual head coverings. That is, we know historically that was the culture. So if that's what Paul means, then why not just say that? Because if women's hair is given to them as a head covering, then he has just undermined his entire argument. Doesn't seem to make sense that Paul would do that. Or is Paul using a woman's long hair as being analogous 
to say that since God, since God has given women a natural head covering, this clearly means that women should wear a head covering in corporate worship as a symbol of authority on her head. Verse 10, right? That's what some theologians want to argue. That Paul is simply using this illustration in verses 14 and 15 as an analogy and saying, look, God has obviously given women a natural head covering. He wants them to have a head covering. Therefore, women ought to have an actual head covering on their head. Is that what Paul is doing? Probably. Probably. That is what Paul is doing. And now you're wondering, why isn't Terry wearing a hat? <laughs> because here's an important hermeneutical rule that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you. And it's, it's, it's part of why I preach the way that I do. I, I read uh, years ago that uh, one of the primary ways in which people learn to study their Bibles is by watching the guy behind the pulpit. How does he handle the text? And so here's an important hermeneutical principle. It is always important to distinguish the cultural practice from the timeless principle. It is always important to distinguish the cultural practice from the timeless principle. Right? Sometimes there is a cultural practice that is inextricably linked to the timeless principle so that we always follow the cultural practice. One example is the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper, they used unleavened bread. They used the fruit of the vine. That cultural practice Jesus used to communicate a timeless principle, a timeless theological truth, and those two things are inextricably linked. You can't separate them. And so I'm, I'm always reminded, for example... R.C. Sproul once said, he said, you know, when, when you become a professor, they, they, they train you and they tell you that there's no such thing as a dumb question, right? You never want to make students feel dumb. There's no such thing as a dumb question. And then he said, but every now and then students ask a really dumb question. <laughs> and he said, he remembers one time a student said, well, when we take the Lord's Supper, why can't we just use peanut butter, jelly, sandwich, and Coca-Cola for the Lord's Supper? And R.C. Sproul said, trying to contain my anger as much as possible, I said between my clenching teeth, because God did not consecrate peanut butter, jelly, sandwiches, and Coca-Cola. So there's a cultural practice that is inextricably linked to the timeless principle, the timeless theological truth, and so we still use leavened bread and the fruit of the vine. But let me give you some other examples of where this does not, this is not the case. And I think you'll agree with me. <clears throat> Throughout this section, 
before I get to those examples, before I get to those examples, throughout this section, we need to keep this in context. There are four things that Paul wants us to understand. That's the first thing we need to know. Right? Let's, let's, let's remind ourselves of the context of this section. There are four important truths Paul is trying to communicate. One is that men and women understand and accept their God-given roles within the church and within the family. You see that in verse, uh, verses 3 and then verses 8 and 9. We saw that there. Number two, Paul wants us to understand from this section that both men and women adorn themselves modestly and with humility within corporate worship. And that is from verses 4 to 7. Right? That's the second thing Paul wants us to know. That both men and women adorn themselves modestly and with humility within corporate worship. The third thing that Paul wants us to get from this passage is that women have a symbol of authority on their head. Verse 10. Women must have a symbol of authority on their head. That's, that's very clear from verse 10. And the fourth thing that Paul wants us to walk away with from this passage is that some visible distinction must be maintained between men and women. Some visible distinction must be maintained between men and women, and that is clear from verses 14 and 15. In Paul's con cultural context, in Paul's cultural context, the symbol of authority on a woman's head was an actual covering. It was an actual covering. Respectable women, modest women, would not leave the home and go out in public without having some sort of covering on their head in, in the first century world. The only women who did that were women who let their hair down and would typically walk the street at night. And so a woman to have a head covering when she went out in public was a visible way of communicating to the world that I understand my role and responsibility as a woman. I, I, I willingly am under the headship of my husband or I am under the headship of my father and that is why I wear this head covering and it, it visibly displayed that to the world. Secondly, the visible distinction that should be maintained between men and women is short hair and long hair. Right? Short hair and long hair and a head covering for women. Right? In Paul's day and age. So women ought to have a, a symbol of authority on their head. And in Paul's day and age, that's the head covering. But then also, there ought to be a distinction between men and women in that day and age, and that was both the head covering and the longer hair for women, the short hair for men. However, the cultural practice, the cultural practice is only needed and it is only to be maintained when it is inextricably linked to the timeless principle or the timeless truth, such as the Lord's Supper. And so, for example, here are some places where we don't continue the cultural practice. 
when Jesus washes the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Jesus washes their feet and then says, You have seen what I have done for you, so you also ought to do to one another, for no servant is greater than his master. Yet we don't wash feet, do we? That's not our culture. That was their culture back then. That was something that they did. When you were going to have dinner, somebody had to wash feet. Usually it was the servant or it was the lowest, the youngest child in the home. Jesus did what culturally needed to be done. But today we don't do that. Jesus wasn't commanding us, I don't think, he wasn't commanding us to keep washing feet. What he was commanding us to do is seek to be a servant to one another. Seek to be the lowest servant to one another. That is the timeless principle that continues without the cultural practice being inextricably linked to it. Here's another one. In Romans chapter 16, verse 6, also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26, and we will see in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul commands Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. Pucker up. We don't do that. Are we sinning by not doing that? That was the cultural practice in that day and age. And in some cultures today, they still do that. Right? There are some countries where men brace one another and they kiss one another on the cheek and then they grab the wine and then I don't know, everything's great. But that's not our culture in the United States, at least not yet. But what is the timeless principle that Paul is, is communicating? Paul is commanding that Christians greet one another with affection, with warmth, with love, with fellowship, with friendship. Right is what he's saying to one another. And we, we still see that to an extent within the church. Um, I know, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in the rough, rough and tumble neighborhood of East Los Angeles. And uh, when I got saved, uh, you know, from where I grew up, uh, one of the things that I saw, thought was odd when I first went into the church is men hugging one another. You know, hey, man, you know, well, that's kind of weird, man. Guys are hugging each other. We don't do that. But that is probably how we carry on that principle that Paul communicates, that, that Christians embrace one another. Now, maybe if you're in another country, they actually still kiss one another. Uh, but we understand that Paul isn't commanding that Christians need to kiss one another. Here's another one. First Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter says that women ought to dress modestly, not with the braiding of hair or the wearing of gold. So is it a sin for women to braid their hair? I've got a daughter here this morning who has braided hair. My wife braids her hair every night before going to bed. Are they sinning? Well, not in this day and age, but in that day and age, the only women who went out publicly with long braided hair were women who were trying to get attention for you know what kind of reason. And they would wear long gold earrings and, and they would try to do things to attract attention to themselves. But in this day and age, we understand that that's not the case. Women can wear braided hair out in public, and it's not the same. The timeless principle that Peter is communicating is that women ought to dress, women should not dress in such a way as to intentionally draw attention to themselves. 
They should dress modestly and with decency. Well, what does that mean? Paul would say, use common sense. Right? Common sense will dictate what that means and what that looks like. Thus, in our culture, women do not wear head coverings to show their submission to their husbands or as a symbol of being under his authority. This is shown by their behavior and their attitude. Right? That's how they show submission to their husbands or to their father is by their behavior, by their attitude. However, in his third argument, Paul draws also from nature, right? Paul draws from nature. Doesn't nature itself? That's timeless. Nature still exists. Culture changes, but nature doesn't. And he makes an argument from nature that short hair on men and long hair on women. Or we might say a woman's hairstyle. Understand that Paul probably doesn't have in mind uh, people living in Central Africa, right? So not all women, I understand, can grow their hair long. So Paul would probably agree with the statement that men ought to have their hair short, women should have their hair long, or have a woman's hair style, and that should be to maintain the distinctions between men and women. Paul also may be drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. If you look at Deuteronomy 22, 5, there God commands that a woman ought not to wear men's clothing and a man ought not to wear women's clothing. God believes that men and women, they are made differently. They have different roles, different responsibilities. They ought to look differently. They should dress differently. And Paul is making the argument that their hair should be different to demonstrate that distinction. And he says the difference is short hair on men and long hair on women. And then he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The ESV says no such practice. The New American Standard and the King James says we have no other practice. Which one is it? The Greek can go either way. You cannot figure it out from the Greek. The only way to know what Paul means by this is by understanding the context. And I think that if Paul says we have no such practice, he has just torpedoed his entire argument. Why, why even make this whole argument if he's basically saying we don't do this in any of the churches? I think Paul, I think the better translation is we have no other practice. In other words, Paul is saying, look, when you're looking for a cultural practice that needs to be maintained among men and women, Paul is saying, this is it. Women should have long hair and men should have short hair. And people oftentimes ask me, okay, but how do you define long and short? Use common sense, right? I think we all know most of us can look at a man and in our mind think to ourselves, well, that's got, he's got long hair. Or we look at a woman and we think to ourselves, wow, that's some really short hair. Right? Use common sense. I've oftentimes told my own kids, and when it comes to men, uh, look at those who are in the professional world whose job it is to appeal to as much of the culture as possible, i.e. presidents. The first four had long hair. Everyone after that has been short. In the end, Paul's main point in this entire section comes down to this. Men and women are different. Men and women are different. They are made differently. 
They were made for different roles. They have different responsibilities. And Paul argues that these differences should be evident from two things. One, our behavior, that we are willing to embrace our God-given roles and responsibilities. And secondly, from our appearance, namely, hair. And that's important in today's culture, honestly. And, 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 and I mean things that are acceptable even, even within uh, Orthodox Christian churches, right? For example, in our culture today, men and women both wear pants. Men and women both wear shorts. Men and women both wear t-shirts. I mean, it just, it's okay, and, and it is. The cultural distinction that Paul says comes from nature is the length of hair. And he argues that ought to be maintained, and I'll remind you, I didn't write the Bible. My job is just to teach it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the word. The word of God that is true and trustworthy. We thank you that it guides us. And it teaches us how we ought to behave, how we ought to live, and even in some circumstances, what we ought to look like. Because all of Scripture is a revelation of your desire for humanity. All of Scripture is a revelation of your will to us. And so whether we agree or not, Father, we pray that you would grant us the humility to submit to your will, to what you have revealed to us for men and women, husbands and wives, and that we would seek to obey, to comply, and to live our lives in such a way that bring you honor and glory and praise. And so, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.